0: Today I want to talk about happiness. The whole world for all time seeks happiness. The desire for happiness that spans cultures and generations. Uh, Bhutan, it's a country that several of us have been to over the past couple of years and have fallen in love with. It's an entire country whose guiding principle is to satisfy the well-being and the collective happiness of its citizens through an index of measurable and attainable life goals and they call it gross national happiness and their king has claimed that gross national happiness is more important than gross domestic product and each year the United Nations produces a lengthy report called the world happiness report and they rank 156 countries with a happiness quotient based on six factors like GDP, life expectancy, social support, generosity freedom and the relative lack of corruption in the government, and whenever this report comes out every year, it's all over social media, at least the top ten, and this year Finland was the number one uh, happiest country in the world. USA was number 18, and Bhutan, gross national happiness, was number 97. Bottom of the list was Burundi, it's an East African country torn by political strife and rampant corruption. Uh, can happiness really be quantified? Can the UN really quantify happiness? And what is it anyway? Is every, is every person in Finland really happier than every single person in Burundi? And if you took a ferry from Helsinki, Finland, down to Denmark, Copenhagen, Denmark, would you feel a difference? Because two years ago, Denmark was named the happiest country in the world. So, you know, what is happiness? I mean, I want to know. I want to be happy. I want to make sure that I'm not missing out on happiness. So am I going to find the answer to this in that 172-page World Happiness Report that the UN produces every year? Am I even going to find this kind of hiking through the mountains and valleys of Bhutan, which I've done? Uh, What is it? And can it even be defined? And why is it so elusive to so many people? You know, two high profile suicides that we've seen in recent days. Uh, Affluent, famous, successful, yet miserable to the point of no longer desiring to live. So we can hear news like that about famous people who commit suicide. And we just kind of hear it dismissively and move on because it just begins to happen so often that it's not unique. But there's a whole world asking the question, why am I not happy when I should be? And do we as the body of Christ have anything to tell them? Not cliches, not superficial non-answers, but truth that matters. And what does the Bible say about happiness? Well, one of my go-to Bible study tools is an online Bible. It's called the Unbound Bible. It's on the Biola website. And it's a really stripped down, no whistles and bells, just online Bible. But it has a really good search feature. And it's in multiple versions, and I use the NASB. So I did a a word search on happy and happiness in the Bible. So the word happy, happiness, it's used 17 times in the New Testament. And one time in the... uh, It's used 17 times in the Old Testament and one time in the New Testament. So for a book that has, you know, lots of substance... And a lot of words, it doesn't seem like it has a great deal to say on this subject uh, until you drill into the words, and then it becomes kind of interesting. So in the Old Testament, there's basically seven words that are ever translated happy or happiness. And the two that are most often used um, are actually used many other times in the Old Testament, but translated as another word, uh, not happy or happiness. One of these is a Hebrew word, esher, and it's used 45 times in the Old Testament, but every other time it's translated not happy, but blessed. Um, the other is samach, and it's used 153 times in the Old Testament. But most often it's translated joy or joyful or joyous. So that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about the Bible's views on happiness. Um, but it starts to tell you something. The Old Testament relates happiness with blessedness and joy. So what about the New Testament? Like I said, the word happy is only used one time in the New Testament, at least in my version, the NASB. However, the Greek word that's translated happy is the word makarios, and it occurs 45 times, uh, other times, and in each case it's translated blessed. So the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're in sync in that they each associate happiness with being blessed, with blessedness. So a little deeper dive, or, or maybe just a nerdier dive, um, but the Septuagint which is a really famous translation of the Old Testament scriptures from Hebrew into Greek, and it was done before the first century, so it would have been the go-to, um, it was really the only version used by the early church, and it would have been used by Jesus and the apostles when they taught and when they quoted scripture, they would have been quoting from the Septuagint. And many people back in that day believed the Septuagint was an inspired process. In other words, that the Greek translation resulting from that translation was inspired. Now, I'm not saying that it is or it isn't, but that was the feeling among a lot of people back in the first century and before, that this was an inspired work. And so it's an important kind of watershed moment in translation, and it was important. So anyway, I found a copy of the Septuagint online because you can find anything there. And I found the verses in the Old Testament that used the word happy in the Septuagint. And I copied them into Google Translate because I wanted to see what word were they actually translating from Hebrew into Greek. And it turns out they were translating this word makarios. So where you see happy in the Old Testament it was translated into the Septuagint as makarios. Um, They used the word blessed. And so I think this begins to tell us a great deal about the Bible's view on happiness and what it means to be happy. Um, And we're going to look at these eight famous blessed statements that Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. So let's turn there. These are also known as the Beatitudes. And the questions to which I was looking to find answers are these. Where is true happiness found? What is true happiness and who who is truly happy now it's a fact there's a lot more taught in these 12 verses than just something about the concept of happiness and I look forward to the day when Doak preaches on this and I don't know when or if he will but I hope he will and he'll spend a whole sermon on each one of these because they're just rich and they're deep but today I just wanted to look at these concepts of happiness and try to answer these questions so I'm just going to read the text and I do have a Bible here but I print it in big print so that I can see it up here. So I'm, it's from the Bible. I know, I know Doke has mentioned that he really, really, really likes seeing a Bible on the pulpit. So here it is. And that's where this is coming from. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So let's just walk through these and, and, and see what we can see about happiness today. Now, Some people have called this the Mount Sinai of the New Testament. God from a mountain declaring his truths to his people. So what's going on here? Well, it's early in Jesus' earthly ministry, yet he's already well-known, I would say even famous. He's already called the 12 disciples, those 12 men that he's going to pour himself into over the next few years. But in addition to these 12, there's a, a larger group that traveled with him pretty much everywhere he went. These are also called Disciples. But in addition to those, there was this really big crowd that gathered from time to time. And this is one of those times. It's a really big event. Um, It says in verse 2 He opened his mouth and he began to teach them. It's important to know who he's teaching here in order for this whole thing to make sense. So in Greek grammar, the them is going to refer to the very first subject that precedes it. So it's going to be his disciples. He's teaching his disciples. The great crowd was listening in. They were listening to this famous rabbi teaching his disciples. So this is a great mass of people living at a really difficult time. Uh, Israel is under the rule of the Roman Empire. Times are tough. Israel's not even a form a shadow of its former glory that it saw, say, for instance, under David or Solomon. And these are people who would want to know answers to questions like, you know, how can I be happy? What is happiness? Does it really look like a Messiah riding in with an army to overthrow the Roman Empire and to reinstitute Israel and the, the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is that it? Is that really what the crowd was expecting or should have been expecting from Jesus' speech this day? Is that what they expected to hear? When is the coup going to take place? Well, Jesus begins to teach his disciples. The crowds are leaning in, they're listening. And just a side note, you know, before I begin to teach something either on Sunday morning here or standing here on the stage or in Nepal or wherever it is, I do my best to try and just learn directly from the scripture what God is saying to me, what the Holy Spirit is telling me. And that that's the foundation. I want to know what God is telling me before I know what he told somebody else either 1,500 years ago or 100 years ago or last week in a podcast. I really want to know what's God telling me. But having said that, I also say that I'm never going to discount the spiritual wealth you know, that's, that's come to us, that's flowed out of the apostles' teaching over the past 2,000 years. And credit goes where credit's due. So A.T. Robertson was a great preacher and Bible teacher. He was born midway through the Civil War and died in 1934. And for the last uh, many years of his life, he taught New Testament Greek at Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he wrote this really well-known, unique commentary set on the New Testament called Word Pictures in the New Testament. A book that's still read today and quoted by preachers all the time. And in that book, in the section on the Sermon on the Mount, he makes the point that the best translation of this word, Macarius, which is the word used over and over in these 12 verses, the best translation is the word happy. Um, Now, there is kind of an opinion that the word blessedness has a higher, uh, more biblical uh, meaning than the word happiness so in English that word has sort of been ennobled and we use blessed but really the word that Jesus is using here is happy and so quoting A.T. Robertson he says happy is what Jesus said so that's one of the preeminent scholars of all time but certainly of the 20th century saying this is the word happy that's being used here so it's okay where we see the word blessed to use the word happy A.T. Robertson says this, quoting him, It is a pity that we have not kept the word happy to the high and holy plane where Jesus placed it, So if we're looking at Jesus teaching on the concept of happiness, then this is the place to look, because that's what he's talking about. How to be deeply, spiritually, and profoundly happy. So the crowds lean in, and he begins to teach. And in verse 3 he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Well, it's an unusual thing that Jesus says. And he did that pretty often. He said the unexpected, the hard to understand, the thing that's sort of contrary to what you would think. I mean, wouldn't we think that the rich in spirit would be happy? But Jesus says the opposite. Happy are the poor in spirit. So, kind of in in Greek, what's implied by the word poor? Well, pretty much what you'd think. Lowly, destitute destitute of the wealth of learning and culture and what is in spirit well spirit is the power by which humans feel think decide it's the soul so jesus is not saying here that simply being impoverished is a source of happiness if you look at this same story of the sermon on the mount in the book of luke and i think those i think the book of luke and matthew are the same exact event it sounds a little bit different but i think they're the same event but if you look at the book of Luke, it simply says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you might get the impression, and some people do build a doctrine on this, that forsaking all material things is a source of happiness and blessedness. That's not what Jesus is teaching here. And so that's one of the real reasons that you've got to study the the word of God in the context of the whole word of God. When you read the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Luke, you really sort of have to look at it in the context of a harmony of the whole story of Jesus presented in the four Gospels. So really, I think here I'm certain that he's talking about a spiritual thing and not uh, abject poverty. Um, He's talking about those who are not rich and arrogant spiritually. So really, uh, this is a statement of the doctrine of justification by Jesus Christ alone by faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's a statement of a person's complete inability to please God by any human effort. So this is a doctrinal statement when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. In Isaiah 66, 2, he says, the Bible says, For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word so he says happy are those who are poor in spirit happier happier those who are humble and contrite in spirit who tremble at my word and why are these people happy for theirs is the kingdom of heaven and we see this in jesus ministry it's not the rich in spirit but the humble the contrite And poor in spirit that found their way into the kingdom of heaven. We see it over and over. In fact, the rich in spirit tended to turn away. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's the rule and reign of God in our hearts and lives. It's the thing that matters most. It's equivalent to salvation, to being in the body of Christ. And the words are important. Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's right then, right now, forever. So happiness is to possess the kingdom, to be in possession of the kingdom, to be possessed by uh, the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus takes happiness and lifts it completely out of the earthly, temporal realm and gave it, like he so often does, a new, eternal significance. Hebrews twelve twenty eight says, there- Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. So what Jesus is talking about is not like any earthly kingdom. They've all been shaken. They continue to be shaken. And they're not the source of happiness in Jesus' view. Verse 4. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, it's another unusual, I mean, even on the surface it sounds a little bit cruel to say this. Mourning is the opposite of happiness. When not we say that? I mean, I can vividly remember holding the hands of each of my parents as I took their last breath and slipped out of this life. And there's others in this room who have said goodbye to someone and let someone go. It comes into every life. It's part of the human condition. And when it comes, you don't feel happy. You mourn. So what's he saying here? What could he mean? Well, I think if we look back at the first verse the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, we noted that he's talking about something spiritual. He's talking about a spiritual condition. And I think that's a hint that as we go through these beatitudes, we can take that as a, a pattern. These are going to be talking about spiritual things, spiritual conditions. And I think that's what he's talking about here. I think perhaps a mourning for the sin and fallenness and helplessness of the world that we see around us And certainly a mourning for our our own spiritual condition. So Jesus is shown twice in the Bible weeping. Once at the tomb of Lazarus where he's weeping over the unbelief of the people that are there. Secondly, he's weeping over the city of Jerusalem at the hardness of its heart. So sin is and was a great problem and one that should cause us to mourn. And he says, happier those who mourn for they shall be comforted. So we have to think about that. Comforted, in Greek the word literally means to call to one side. This is the verb form of the word by which the Holy Spirit is called in John 16:7, where Jesus, much later on in his ministry, says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. The word helper is the noun form of the word to comfort called to one side Paraclete, we know that word. Jesus is saying that those who mourn will be comforted by the one, the helper, the paraclete, who truly brings comfort. So one day Jesus, one day Christ will remove sin and all of its effects from the believer forever. Now we live in the world where we are aware of sin, we are aware of its effects. The sort of smell of sin is all around us but the day is coming when we'll be taken from this world into Christ's presence and there there will be no more sin to confess and we'll be like him paul wrote in romans 8:20 20, 21 this kind of broad statement about creation but it's interesting it says for the creation was subjected to fil- for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who suge- subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's comfort in that and ultimately happiness. Sorrow should make us look for the heart and hand of God, which is buried in grief. Um, The world without Christ seeks comfort, but the world has no solution. The world cannot offer happiness to those who mourn. Now, it can definitely offer to distract them, but not comfort them. And it can't offer happiness. Verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. So we can see how there might be a happiness in being gentle. I mean, it's it's a good word, a good term, a positive thing. But when he adds a second part of the verse, it becomes again kind of not what we'd expect. For they shall inherit the earth. We don't necessarily think of gentle as being great in the earth. And certainly wouldn't think of the gentle as inheriting the earth. The earth belongs to the strong, uh, to the ones who conquer and take it, not to the gentle. And maybe this crowd who's expecting this conquering Messiah is sitting there that day in kind of shocked silence. I don't know. Peter wrote about gentleness in 1 Peter 3.15. He said, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you. To give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And Paul talked about gentleness quite a few times, but a couple of those. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And in Colossians three twelve he says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So that gives us a clue that gentleness is a characteristic by which God promises to bring happiness to the lives of believers and through them to others. But that it's not a natural characteristic. It's a fruit of the spirit. But the result of supernatural working of God's spirit in our lives. This is not something we can do on our own. So we have to understand the word gentle and how these people would have heard it. Gentleness toward God is that disposition of the spirit in which we accept God's dealing with us as good. Without disputing, without resisting. Gentleness toward evil people means knowing that God is permitting the injuries that they inflict. And that he's using them to purify his elect and that he will deliver his elect in his own good time. And seeing all of that as good. Because God is good. So gentleness is a sort of vertical virtue, more so than a horizontal virtue. I want to read a little bit, several of the verses from Psalm 37. I'm going to read verses 3 through 7, and then verses 10 and 11. So this is Psalm 37. He says, David says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the And he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. And then in 10 and 11, he wraps it up by saying this Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place. And he will not be there. But the gentle will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So, this is a concept as old as the writings of David that the gentle will inherit the land. And David saw this only as an act of God and and as something that would occur in the lives of those devoted to the Lord. So, according to Psalm 37, who are the gentle? Well, those who trust in the Lord, those who delight themselves in the Lord, those who commit their way to the Lord those who rest in the Lord. According to Jesus, it's these who are happy and who will inherit the earth. He's simply not talking about anything the world can understand. In fact, and and throughout the Beatitudes, a change of heart is assumed. Um, He's talking to people, as I said earlier, oppressed by the brutal Roman Empire. He's talking to the crowd. These people, he's telling this crowd, these people to accept where they are in life And in time, they'll ultimately inherit the earth. The knowledge of this is happiness. If we look at the circumstances of our life and we rail against the circumstances of our life, we become woeful and unhappy. If we settle in our hearts and our minds that these circumstances are not only in his control, but ordained by him, that allows our spirit to look upward beyond the temporal moment and to... Look forward with faith and see the outcome of the story. God's people do, in fact, inherit the earth. So verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, he's talking to people who probably didn't have enough to eat. A lot of people in those days didn't even earn wages, so they were pretty destitute. Poverty was common. Hunger was common. But he's not talking about something as common as food and drink that would temporarily uh, fill their stomachs. Now, is Jesus, concern, is Jesus unconcerned about those who literally have nothing to eat and no clean water to drink? Yeah, of course he's concerned. And he proved it plenty of times. And one of his most poignant commands to us is in Matthew 10, 20, 10.42, where it says, And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, Truly, I say to you, he shall not lose his reward, so absolutely Jesus cares about poverty and hunger and thirst and refugees, and he expects us to care, but he 's not saying that true happiness is found in a temporarily full stomach because tomorrow it 's got to be filled again he 's talking about a spiritual condition, so Augustine said long time ago you 've made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you so." How is that restlessness, that hunger, satisfied? A little bit of looking into the Greek on these words. Hunger is to seek with eager desire. Thirst is to painfully feel a want and to eagerly long for those things by which the soul is refreshed. And what is righteousness? He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is that condition that makes us acceptable to God. So he's saying, Happy is the one who seeks with eager desire and eagerly longs for that thing which will satisfy and refresh the soul, namely to be acceptable to God. And to be acceptable to God is to have everything. And Jesus says that those who are like this, who who hunger and thirst after righteousness, those who do this will be satisfied. He says later in the sermon in chapter 7, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seeking, you will find, knock, and it shall be opened to you. So, where there is this desire for righteousness, there will be this filling, this fulfillment, this satisfaction. And the knowledge that if we eagerly seek God and to be acceptable to Him, then we will be satisfied in that seeking. It's a source of happiness. It's not enough to simply seek happiness, though, but to hunger and seek after righteousness, holiness before God. Then comes the filling, then comes happiness. And the filling, by the way, what is it? And in John six thirty five, Jesus said, "I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst." The filling is Jesus Himself. That is the satisfaction. So, the beatitudes, these statements on happiness, they're not in random order. Jesus came with uh, purpose. He came with precision. He said things purposefully. He acted purposefully. He went places purposefully. And I think the Holy Spirit, I don't think I really believe deeply that the Holy Spirit inspired these things to be recorded with purpose. And I think that the 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 Beatitudes are not in random order. So if we look at these first three, poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the gentle, um, these three show us how we must stand in relation to God I mean, we have to be spiritually bankrupt and understand that's where we are. We have to mourn for our spiritual condition. And we have, to gently, we have to be gently subservient to God. And then the fourth, God's provision of righteousness for the one who seeks it. The thing is, no one will seek this unless they're recognizing the first three, that they're spiritually bankrupt, broken over their sins, and gently subservient to the lordship of Jesus Christ. These are important doctrinal statements here. These are not platitudes that he was spilling out on this audience that day. He's, he's telling them how to be a part of the kingdom of God. He's telling us that today. So only after those first four beatitudes can we even consider the next three. Because the next three are divine qualities. They're qualities of God. And I'm going to go through them fairly quickly. Um, verse 7 Blessed are the merciful, for they shall have mercy. Sounds pretty straightforward. So what is mercy? It's to help one who is afflicted and seeking aid, to bring help to the wretched. Mercy is to identify with the helpless and wretched. So he's talking to a very large crowd of people who would fit this description. They desire mercy. They want to be out from under the yoke of Roman oppression. And not only do they need to be set free from Roman oppression... But they need to be set free from the very state of their souls. And whether they or we admit it, we know this. We have a sense of being wretched and separated from God. Augustine referred to that. And, and we feel that. Yet he, tells them by, yet he tells them that by showing mercy, mercy will be shown to them. And this is not something I believe that they can even do unless they've been regenerated, born again, have moved into the kingdom of heaven via those first four beatitudes. And he drives this point home later in his Sermon on the Mount when he's teaching them how to pray in Matthew seven twelve. He says, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So to know that the way to God's mercy is by showing mercy, it's a source of happiness. The world doesn't get it, doesn't understand it, and this is not the advice the world gives. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why is that? For they shall see God. It's very short and pithy and easy to understand. Everyone wants to see God. It's a human desire. But how can it happen? It requires a pure heart. And pure is to be free from corruption, from sin, from guilt, to be blameless, to be innocent. And the heart is the fountain and the seat of thoughts, passions, desires. So the purity talked about here, interestingly, is a purity derived from a process of purification. We call it sanctification. The first four we would call salvation. Here in these sections, he's kind of talking about sanctification, getting better at this, getting more like Jesus, becoming more like Jesus. He's telling the crowd, like all human beings who know that they don't have pure hearts, that a pure heart is required to see God. So what's the solution? He doesn't tell them this as an unattainable goal. Purification will take place. Um, He will send the Holy Spirit to accomplish this in the lives of those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. To live in the knowledge that our purification will be accomplished. And because of that we will see God again. It's a source of happiness. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. And he says, happy are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. This is not a passive thing. This is people who make peace. Only those who have known peace with God through the cross of Christ really can truly become peacemakers. And this word has the, the idea that they're going to be peacemakers every place. In their families, in their work, their church, their country. Every place they are, they're going to have the effect of making peace. And why are these people going to be happy? Because they're going to be called sons of God. Sons of God are those, for whom, are those whom God loves and protects. It's us, it's the believers, it's Christians. And there's a happiness in being identified as a child of God. Verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, difficult, even strange words from Jesus to those listening intently there that day and And to us today, these years later. Earlier, he said that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. And we talked about that. Now he says that that very righteousness that they've sought may lead to persecution. Yet, they'll be happy. So how is that? Why is that? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's not something they have to wait for. They possess it now, just as the poor in spirit. Yet, possessing the kingdom of heaven is a reason for happiness. And finally, verses 11 and 12. Again, more about persecution. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. More difficult words. I mean, Jesus is this famous teacher, this beloved rabbi, and the people flock to him. They love him. And then he says these hard things. So he says when, not in the remote possibility that it occurs, but when... You're insulted, persecuted, and lied about because of me. He says you'll be blessed and you're happy. So how is that? Why is that? He tells the why in verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The happiness is now, the reward is later, and that reward in heaven is great. And that's how we live Happy now in a way the world can't offer, can't possibly understand. And just a note on this last beatitude, this is probably for a completely different sermon, but I started thinking about it. The persecution talked about here is really specific. It's not for people who go out and and create antagonism and get persecuted for it. It's not what it's about. That's not what it's talking about here. We're not taught to seek persecution. We're We're not called to go out and cause persecution. He says here, Persecuted for righteousness' sake because of Jesus. It's talking about being persecuted for being like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So here and in other places, this kind of, here in the Bible and in other places in the word of God, this kind of persecution is almost, it it almost indicates that it's inevitable for those who are truly being and holding themselves out as like the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, the world hates me, it's going to hate you. He just made that emphatic statement. So a question. I'm not answering it today. It's a question to ponder that I'm pondering. If we don't see persecution of Christians here in America as it exists in many other places on the planet, why is that? I mean, it's a question to just think about. Um, But here's the deal. We live with the certain knowledge that the kingdom of heaven is ours. We live with the certainty of being comforted by the only one who can truly bring comfort. We live with the certainty that we will inherit the earth with all of God's people. We live with the certainty that we will receive mercy on that great day that we stand before Jesus. We live with the certainty that we will see God. We live with the certainty that we are a child of God. We live with the certainty that we will receive a very great reward in heaven. And in these certainties, we find Lasting, true, enduring, unshakable happiness. So the happiness that Jesus talks about, it's not attainable through any earthly means. It's clear. This world can't offer this kind of eternal happiness. So did everyone there that day get it? No. Did all the disciples get it? Well, clearly they didn't. Judas didn't. So these things are spiritually discerned, made knowable to us by the enlightening work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So, back to the earlier question, for a world looking for an answer to the question, why am I not happy when I should be? Do we have an answer for them? I think we do. I think the answer is this. A Savior came. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. He was buried. He rose from the dead on the third day. He ascended to heaven. He sits at the Father's right hand interceding for those that belong to him, and he's returning. I think the path to happiness cannot shortcut this truth. The path to happiness is through the cross of Christ. No other way. And what about for us, the body of Christ? So we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He's ever-present with us in our lives. So what's the reason that some of us might have an uneasy sense of, I'm not happy. Somehow I'm missing it. Mike Sisko and the Paul shared his testimony, which was centered around the theme, do I believe what I believe? And he meant, can I intellectual, I, sure I can intellectualize it, but is it real in my life? Um, and these 12 verses are the core of Jesus' teaching on happiness. So if we're not feeling happy, and we just have an intellectual acknowledgement of these truths, so we can go through these Beatitudes, and we can check them off and say, I believe that, because, because why? Because Jesus said it. Of course I believe it. So we can intellectually assent to this. But if we're not feeling happy, then we have to ask why. Because it's not okay then to just read through these, give intellectual assent to them, then close our Bibles and walk out into life and feel unhappy, unfulfilled, discontent, and uneasy. That's a problem. And so what's, what's the answer? Well, the answer might be that the noise of the world is just too much in our lives. Um, I'm chasing things and stuff and relationships, and, you know, the list is endless, none of which are eternal, none of which are Jesus. So later on in this sermon, Jesus is going to say in Matthew six thirty three, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So if we feel we're missing happiness in our lives, Well, I think that's our challenge. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So let's pray.